condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hi everyone. Hi Jim. and welcome to. Do it, Sorry, Harrison. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just welcome waiting for you to do behind it. Behind the headlines. Well, whatever. Welcome to behind the headlines on the Sat Talk Radio. Sat Talk Radio. Sat Radio Network. Who knows what it is? It's nine eleven. That's all that matters. Uh, yes. Yes. Happy nine eleven day. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me, as usual, is Neil Bradley. Hi everyone. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. And we also have Alan, as usual. Hey, everyone. And William. Is William here? Yes, I'm here. Hello, everyone, on this post-9-11 world. (laughs) Yes, it is a post-9-11 world. That's something we can be absolutely sure of. That may be the only hard fact you get on this show today. Uh, We can state with... Absolute certainty that we are in a post nine eleven world. But what does that mean? Post nine eleven. Well, I guess it just it's not pre nine eleven. So what's pre nine eleven world? Well, yeah. What was what was the world like pre nine eleven? Unicorns and rainbows. Yeah, there were a lot more rainbows. Well, it's pretty uh, much. No, actually, uh, there weren't a lot more rainbows. Pretty much a lot like post nine eleven, only much less so. It yeah. was it was less nine eleven y. It was nine nine eleven e or nine eleven brought uh, the very worst elements of um, U.S. ambition and uh, among other countries uh, for world control and domination among other. Um, among other plans uh, to its kind of full uh, or fuller realization. Um, the full aroma. The full aroma. Yeah, pre-9-11, we didn't have a war on terror. We had a war on drugs, but... Mm-hmm. But really, it's just kind of... I think it's just all yeah. the same. Yeah. So that's it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the reason for our ambivalence about even discussing this, yes, today is the 15th anniversary of 9-11. On previous anniversaries, we've had, you know, fairly detailed shows going into some specifics, whether it's about policy, history, or the actual way things are supposed to have unfolded that day. But this time we're like, nah, whatever, because America, in part because we've come to the realization that those who do question it, fine, they question it, and invariably it means they also question a whole host of other things that they're told by their authorities. But the great mass still don't really, they might say, yeah, 
Mm, interesting. To a video or to some other form of presentation of alternative information about what happened that day. But really, they get on with their lives and mm-hmm. don't care. They'll revere 9-11 as a pay on pay to the dead and, you know, as a reason for supporting, in America's case, whatever the government does. Um, well, certainly supporting whatever the troops do. Um, we might now and then express some kind of curiosity about what actually happened that day. But for the most part, you know, people are getting on with things. They don't really care about what happens. So our ambivalence to it is simply an acceptance of the great sea of ambivalence about it out there. Yes, but are our listeners ambivalent? That's the question. Or do they want to find out about 9-11 all over again? <laughs> because I'm assuming that our listeners, most of our listeners know most of uh, what there is to know about 9-11. But maybe, um, maybe it would be useful for people to, because, you know, hindsight's, uh, hindsight's 2020, you know, mm. as they say. And, um, you can, when you look back on certain things, uh, as long as you've been watching what has happened after the thing happened, uh, it can put it in a different perspective, you know, as long as you've been learning and, uh, you know, kind of continuing to pay attention. Yeah. To pay attention to, to, to develop your, your perspective on things and you know, change your perspective on things with, with new information. So if you do that with nine eleven. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, at least for us. Some people may, may have known it all then. I don't think really anybody really knew it all, all then, except even the people who did it didn't even know it all then, if you know what I mean. Uh, because there have been things, obviously, that happened in the past, uh, particularly, in the, well, really, okay, since 9-11, the last 15 years, but particularly in the last five or, uh, five or 10 years, um, stuff that has come out, information that has come out, and... Uh, events that have occurred that do tend to um, back up, if any, for anybody who's watching, do tend to back up the conspiracy theory around 9-11. Um, take, for example, I mean, of course you have to be of, of, of a, a skeptical mind, uh, the same kind of skeptical mind or questioning mind who would question of question nine eleven at the time uh, would also be continuing to question things that have happened since then. For example, if you consider I think about ISIS uh, that rose uh, rose upon the scene or, or appeared upon the scene in the past few years and the evidence that exists for them being a bunch of um, mercenaries or paid guns effectively to one extent or another in, in the pay of uh, Western governments or Western intelligence agencies. Well, if you, if you go there and imagine that those, that those people could actually, that that could be, that could well be the case or may well be the case. And you are allowing for the idea that Western intelligence agencies can put together 30, 40, whatever thousand uh, um, jihadi terrorists and set them loose in a country in the Middle East like Syria well, then how hard is it 
or the people who have the wherewithal to do that to uh, set up or get the same number of jihadi terrorists, or not the same number, but a smaller, much smaller number of jihadi terrorists, 19 to be exact, um, and have them involved in some way or other with the 9-11 attacks. The point being that this is um, Western intelligences have a history of staging events, staging uh, causes or justifications for war. And of course, 9-11 was the justification for war par excellence. I don't think uh, you could really get a, a better one than blowing up the World Trade Center towers and uh, and, to, and using them then as a justification for for invading the Middle East, which, of course, uh, that's exactly what the U.S. government or the U.S. military did. Um, or as... Uh, as George Bush, as George Bush W, George W. Bush said on 9/11 <laughs> to Dick Cheney, um, he said, "Can I have a nap now?" Yeah, is it my nap time yet? I said, "That's what we're paid for, boys. We're gonna, we're going to take care of this. When we find out who did this, they are not going to like me as president. We're going to get the bastards." Now, that's according to uh, Ari Fleischer, who just happened to be Bush's press secretary at the time, i.e. he was Bush's bullshit artist-in-chief, his main job being to make stuff up and tell the media, and therefore the public, stuff that was not true, or to spin the facts to make the president look good. Of course, the idea that George Bush would have said those words in a kind of action man <laughs> that, that are in line with the, the, the persona, I suppose, of a, of, a, of a man of action is hilarious when anybody who remembers George W. Bush or even watched the video of him sitting in the school in Florida when uh, he was told his, uh, whatever that guy's personal secretary, I can't remember his name, uh, came over and told him while he was Andrew sitting Card. reading a book, Andrew Card, yeah, came over and supposedly we have to assume that. Uh, when he whispered in Bush's ear as he was sitting in a classroom in Florida of uh, first graders or I don't know, second graders or something, children basically reading a book, My Pet Goat, to them, uh, and uh, Andrew Card came over and whispered in Bush's ear. We're told that he was told, telling him, Mr. President, we've just been attacked. Merck is under attack. Uh, and <laughs> Bush, the man of action, who, who later then supposedly said, we're going to get the bastard, they're not going to like me as president, God damn it, I'm going to get... Apparently, um, because no one told him what to do, he was just told America's been attacked. He didn't know what to do. He just sat there looking rather sheepish, which was, I suppose, uh, um, appropriate, given that he was reading a book called My Pet Goat. Uh, but uh, He sat there looking sheepish and didn't know what to do. He sat there for about nine or ten minutes, actually, just not doing anything. And the reason, I mean, you'd think that as, soon, as, as the commander-in-chief being told that Mr. President, we've just been subjected to a horrible attack. Our entire nation is under attack at this point, Mr. President. We don't know what to do. A man of action who would utter those words, let's get the bastards, would in that moment have jumped up and said, listen, kids, I'm the president, and as much as I'd like to stay here and read this book to you, I've got to go save the country. It needs me. And he would have just got up and walked out, right? He would have gone and taken some action. He would have got on the phone. He would have called people and said, what are we doing with this? You know, he would have been a man of action, but he sat there going, 
mm, mm, looking kind of like awkward and weird. That's well, that's the way he looked for all eight years of his presidency. But um, <laughs> and apparently, that's the book so, I mean, I think I, I think we can safely safely assume assume that this these words. Uh, that's what we're paid for, boys. We're going to take care of this. Uh, ascribed to Bush by his press secretary is complete uh, fantasy, and Bush did not say that at all. That's just it's, it's what Bush well was himself. thinking while he was sitting there. He was having a oh, little was, uh, fantasy thinking. about being president. Yeah, it was his inside yes. voice. <laughs> An action man. This is what I'd do if I was president. So, um. So, um yeah, I mean, the whole thing was just, um, obviously, 9-11 is, is full of holes, and most of our listeners know, uh, I think, the holes in the official story, um, they're all over the place. It's a big Swiss yeah. cheese, um, and most of the narrative around 9-11, all of the narrative around 9-11 is patently a jingoistic fantasy uh, that was presented to the American people to justify what... Uh, it happened immediately after 9-11, which was that they invaded the Middle East. Do what they did, which was, as we have found out, and again, this gets back to the idea about hindsight and learning more about uh, geopolitics over the past 10 or 15 years, that the, the rationale for 9-11, um, or the, the, the justification, uh, 9-11 was used as justification to invade the Middle East as... Uh, for the purpose of projecting American power into the Middle East to maintain control of uh, oil supplies and uh, natural resources, etc., and largely to, to thwart Russia, to keep Russia out of the Middle East and maintain American hegemony in the world. When the people who want to maintain America as the world's greatest superpower figure that that was uh, was not a, a that 9-11 was not overstated in that sense, that it was justified, you know, um, that you needed a spectacular event like that where America was under attack to justify what they did. And, yeah, I mean, they basically went wholesale into the Middle East and invaded two countries and later uh, attacked two other countries more recently, uh, all as part of 9-11. There's an unbroken line going back to 9-11 that justifies everything that, you're hap- that you see happening today. I have a question, though. Knowing what I do now about the 20th century, the U.S. already had control over the Middle East. And it just seemed like... Not really, no. Why? Not control over the Middle East. They didn't have control. I mean, Iraq was still uh, a sovereign country that was uh, very much anti-U.S., US, um, not inclined well, to... Well, they put Saddam Hussein in power. Well, at the time, at, at the time, yeah. sure. But, I mean, things go wrong. Things change quite quickly uh, in, in geopolitics and stuff, and you can never keep a handle on things. And so why not do what they did it wasn't just Iraq. times before then and have another phony revolution and a coup? It works so well. They, they've done well, they, it since 9-11, yeah, but talking, times. But look what they've done. They're talking about remaking the Middle East. I mean, you can go back to, what's his name, um, um, Stanley, not Stanley, what's his name, the guy who talked about the seven countries, uh, the general? Wesley Clark. Wesley Clark. Um, mm-hmm. he, uh, 
I mean, he made it, he made it clear. I mean, there's no reason to disbelieve him that the, the plan was a wholesale remaking of the Middle East. That I mean, they obviously felt the threat, saw the threat of Russia, and they said, "This isn't good. This is going to go wrong." We we just look on a crystal ball down the line, and we need to. It's not about overthrowing. You're not going to be able to overthrow the resources required. I mean, you can overthrow a place like Ukraine, uh, overthrow the government in Ukraine because it's on, on your uh, borders, but and you have a lot more access. Uh, but the Middle East was just uh, not. A, my understanding is that it's not. It wasn't so easy. It's not so easy for them to do what they wanted to do. And you look at what they wanted to do, and they wanted to destroy several countries. They wanted to uh, completely want to invade, occupy a country for ten years, and uh, absolutely. Uh, take control of the country. You know, I mean, of course, that it doesn't work, but it was a, it was a desperate move because what are you going to do? You're going to dominate the entire globe, any but country that disagrees spent, with you. Here's the thing, though: they just spent a hundred years successfully dominating by a covert means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems like a complete like it. It seemed like a strange break with the pattern. To so obviously put themselves out there as a target because they're, they are they are at least ideologically a target. Physically, they're safe all the way over there in the middle of the Atlantic between two oceans. But ideologically, they're, ideologically they're a target for who? Well, for all, not indirectly, all the things that have happened since then. Mm-hmm. I've made America a, a target. Yeah, in the sense, uh, I don't just mean like the, the, the ire for, desire for revenge on the part of Muslims who've been affected mm-hmm. directly. Yeah, exactly. But everyone else, I mean, Europeans who are sick to, sick and tired of yeah. America coming in and saying it's got to be this or that. Well, some of uh, People all over the world. Um, but that's what you want. You want threats. But this, this, this is what's twisted about it. If you look at the timeline, you mentioned Russia, right? The timeline is the USSR falls in 1990, 1991. And then there's, there's jubilation, there's some kind of jubilation in D.C. because... Well, we won. And that's reflected in a lot of the statements that came out after that and some famous books about the end of history and so on. And at the end of the 90s, Russia is at its weakest ever in the Cold War, which didn't end. Let's assume this is still the Cold War period. Mm-hmm. If we're in Cold War Two now, that was just a hiatus. It's all the Cold War, whatever. It's a standoff with the Russia and then in general with Eurasia. Right. So China too. Russia is at its weakest. And America is at its... Supreme, it's strongest. Yeah, but it doesn't have militarily. But it doesn't, have, point. But it doesn't have everything. What, what do you What do you do when your enemy's at its weakest? When your enemy's at its weakest, mm-hmm. well, you strike him. Well, you go and get what uh, you, you you take. You get the in there first. Take the opportunity. So nine eleven was a step too far. For who? For them? No, because it created lots of threats to America, which is good for America. The more threats there are to America, the better. Because it highlights uh, the fact that America is an exceptional nation, and of course, there are there are bad people out there um, who, you know, there are good people, i.e., people in America, bad people, i.e., people not in America, who want to who hate America for their freedoms, and who and we need to go and get the bad people, uh, of course. So that's the very story. That's the children's narrative. The reality behind it isn't too far from that. It's actually we want other people's stuff. We want to get in. We want to dominate the globe. We want to dominate completely. I think. There was an awareness, or at least a, a, I mean, maybe it wasn't so much, maybe it's not so much, I was going to say there was an awareness that amongst the political elite uh, in the US that Russia was potentially, could regroup and could become a threat. But I think in the 90s, they were fairly safe, uh, they were fairly secure 
uh, or they felt secure that Russia was not uh, going to pose any kind of a threat. Um, but that doesn't, of course, the problem was, again, also the, the Middle East. You know, you had big countries like Iraq, Iran, Syria, I mean, uh, and other, like Libya. The country, yeah, the countries that they, that they invaded since were obviously, at that time, not on board. And they wanted them to be on board. And if they weren't going to come on board willingly, then they were going to be destroyed and overturned. And this is, I mean, it's psychologically, it's just, uh, it's just the outplaying of a, of a, of a psychopathic mindset where, mm-hmm. uh, there can be no, um, no resistance. No, nobody can, nobody can say no to me, basically. And any, you look around the world, America looks around the world and anybody who says no, uh, you're in big trouble. And there are a lot of people, countries saying no simply by saying we want to be independent. We don't want to necessarily do what you want us to do. We don't want to give up our resources uh, to you. We don't want to open up our countries to your corporations. And as much as America might have had had it all, they didn't have it all, and they wanted it. Well, and one of the so things about when you say it, I mean, yeah, one Go of ahead. the things about empire is that it's not like empires don't kind of rest on their laurels once they have a, a big chunk of what they want. It's it constantly it has to expand, and that's kind of the logic of empire is that you've, mm-hmm. you've got to keep going further, no matter how far that is. So if you look at uh, right, like, oh, go ahead. I was going. I was going to say it's absolutely nihilistic in the sense of uh, it's, it's self-destructive because, I mean, empires have to do that to fulfill their ultimate destiny, which is to collapse. Mm-hmm. An empire on a planet has to eat as much as possible because it has to keep expanding and feeding because it's, it's living beyond its means. So it has to keep stealing stuff from other people and keep going, keep going. And uh, there, there's, no, there's no logic behind it from a rational perspective because ultimately these people should realize that the world is a finite place. And what happens if you basically need to keep stealing other people's resources to survive? What are you going to do when you've got it all? At that point, well, then you're going to die, right? Because you live beyond your means all the time. Mm-hmm. So then you're going to starve and collapse, and it's going to be like a contraction. Yeah. So they're just fulfilling their destiny, the destiny of all empires. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if you look at it in the economic perspective, um, in two thousand two thousand one, you had the big you know dot com bubble burst. And U.S. was not in a good shape at that time in 2001. So, of course, you know, mm-hmm. what always turns around in an economy is war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you look and at the, the, other, the other thing I want to go, go ahead, Harrison. No, you go first. I'll save it. I was just going to say, going back to the, you know, looking back in hindsight, you see um, reference in, in, in 9-11, at least uh, initially, was the, the Saudi connection. A bunch of the so-called hijackers were Saudis. Okay, some of them happened to be alive, but, well, there's a story about, behind that, you know, there's a, a rationale for that, which is that their, their identities were stolen. So we don't actually know who at least seven or eight or nine of the actual hijackers were because they stole identities of people who are provably alive. So there's at least half the hijackers or so are, uh, are mysteries. In the sense, we don't know what their who, their identities <clears throat> at all, even though they still use the names of the people who afterwards came out and said, oh, "I'm alive. That's my picture. That's my passport. Mm-hmm. Someone stole it. Who stole it? Don't know. Blacked out figure with a question mark in his face. I.e., probably didn't exist at all. Right? At least half the hijackers did not exist, unless someone can come up with their identities. Anyway." Uh, Saudi Arabia, the connection with Saudi Arabia at the time, um, 
was there. And we also now, again, talking about ISIS, we have a, a very direct connection between the Saudi Arabia and other Gulf monarchies with ISIS, uh, working kind of hand in hand, let's say, with the CIA uh, to fund, train and arm Muslim terrorists to justify American imperial uh, involvement in the Middle East. I'll just say that again. Saudi Arabia and the US today are working hand in hand to finance and train and arm Muslim terrorists clearly to justify American involvement in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And that statement about ISIS today is could be said exactly uh, in the same way with 9-11 as things have come out because recently there were those documents that were released with the redacted pages and all that kind of stuff uh, showing high-level Saudi Arabian uh, government or official involvement in 9-11 and somehow in, 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 in training or funding or facilitating the hijackers, etc., etc. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead, Harrison. Well, <clears throat> I want to get to a couple of things you just said about the Saudi connection, but first, um, looking at it kind of in hindsight and as part of a, a historical narrative, um, for me lately, I've been looking at it in terms of the past, say, 40 years. And because I, th- mm-hmm. I find that the more that I the more that I read about not just nine eleven but related subjects, the more the picture kind of gets rounded out. And if you start in the mid seventies, that's when you had this. Um, the like the CIA got exposed in a lot of ways. People learned about all these covert operations and dirty wars that were going on. And the CIA director right. at the time, I can't remember what the guy's name was. He doesn't. He's not one of the most memorable CIA directors. But he kind of scaled back the CIA a bit. And guys like Bush and um, Casey and Helms, their type, were not very happy about this. So Bush, along with some other guys, they got this idea, which had been used in the past previously, but which they kind of put into a big operation at that time, to create a kind of private intelligence network. And it's kind of gone down in history as the Safari mm-hmm. Club, based on where it was, uh, you know, where it was kind of created at some hotel, I think, it's somewhere in somewhere in Africa, but it it was basically a connect, um, a series of liaisons between the intellig- between intelligence um, people in Morocco, France, um, Saudi Arabia, um, a few other countries. And basically it was a way to finance and take part in covert operations without going through official CIA channels, even though these were CIA guys involved, but they could basically outsource their covert operations. That doesn't mean that covert that CIA didn't continue to do covert operations, but this was just one aspect of it um, for plausible deniability. Now, this is the U.S. had been cozy with Saudi Arabia before that, but this kind of cemented the deal and created close ties with uh, Saudi intelligence. Now, when you go forward a few years into the 80s, of course, you have Afghanistan, and that's when the CIA was liaising with Pakistani intelligence and Saudi intelligence and basically outsourcing the creation of what would become al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So not only were they mm-hmm. funding and creating these so-called you know, moderate jihadis in and from Afghanistan, they were funneling in foreign terrorists, foreign freedom fighters, who were, again, trained and financed by the Saudis and the Pakistanis. And 
bring, getting them from all over the from all over the world to fight Russia. Also in the eighties, you had guys like Cheney and Rumsfeld, and like George Bush and uh, Graham Fuller, and a lot of guys who are still around today and who were around and involved in events uh, of nine eleven, who were part of this team, the PNAC guys. That's where they all got started. They had, that's where they started getting their ideas for this kind of global domination. And not only that, they had their continuity of government plans, which is basically their, mm-hmm. um, which basically went into effect on 9-11, which was for mass surveillance and, you know, ar- arbitrary detention, torture, pretty much everything that we saw on 9-11. It was basically like a, a blueprint for the Patriot Act. We had, so we had those guys in the 80s. Now we go in the 90s, like Neil had said, Soviet Union falls. And, um, okay, so Russia isn't the, the, as big a threat as it was before, but you've still got this Cold War ment- mentality where the, the empire is um, made an empire by virtue of the fact of this, um, this big enemy. So you've got you know, a bit of, oh, well, what do we do now? But at the same time, okay, mm-hmm. our biggest enemy is weak. We are working to take over them, control Russia completely. At the same time, we've got to consolidate everything that we do have and take care of all of the kind of, um, you know, dot all our I's and cross all our T's all around the globe. So then this happens in like the mid, uh, the mid nineties. And that's when, well, and before that there had been this destabilization going on in like Yugoslavia where these very same people that were being used, um, by CIA, Pakistani ISI and the Saudi uh, GID in, uh, in Afghanistan, all these guys were being used and then funneled into, um, into Yugoslavia, and this was this was being done um, using like ch- um, you know Muslim charities and stuff set up like with offices in New York, and these were the very people that would later you know publicly be identified as being involved in all kinds of so-called Al Qaeda attacks, whether 9/11 or before, mm-hmm. before that, you know the coal bombing, the embassy bombings in Africa, um, like guys like Zawahiri and uh, you know Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. These guys were all part of this this team that was basically CIA, ISI, and GID, and that's so that's going mm-hmm. on all through the early '90s, and then you move into the later '90s, and of course, what happened in Russia in the late '90s was Chechnya. Well, it had been it had been a continuing conflict, but that's when it kind of blew up. Now, according to Sibel mm-hmm. Edmonds, and it makes sense in this timeline. Right around that time is when this whole CIA operation of dealing with these jihadi guys that kind of it kind of became an official nato operation at that time too where guys like graham mm-hmm. fuller you know they put the plan into operation okay well this is go- we're going to actually weaponize this even further and we're going to deliberately use this in all sorts of countries um and you know uh, turkey the all the caucasus central asia and we're going to basically do this and further the agenda in doing this so this is going on in the late 90s and that's when you get the the second Chechen war blows up and then 9-11 mm-hmm. happens. Now, so all of this stuff has been going on for 20 years where we've had this, this sequence and um, just continued use of, of these guys that would become Al-Qaeda. So if we just look at that 20 years and look at it in context, okay, this whole time before 9-11, uh, the CIA has been um, intimately involved with these guys that would be Al-Qaeda. And then... 9-11 happens. Now we look at the 20 years, well, the 15 years since 9-11, and what do we see? Well, again, we see the U.S. kind of <laughs> teaming up with al-Qaeda. What's going on? They use these guys in Libya. They're using them now in Syria. It's So 9-11 kind of like in the official story sticks out 
as this sore thumb, like this anomaly. Oh, it's the one time that we weren't, you know, working with Al Qaeda, which is ridiculous. So that's mm. kind of the, that's it, kind of the, oh, go ahead. Neil? It it doesn't really stick out in terms of operational. Yeah. Uh, how it actually went down. It yeah. sticks out in the narrative. I agree. Exactly. But operationally, Al Qaeda had nothing to do with what happened in New York or the Pentagon, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very sophisticated technology. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, point 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 made that for a few brief years they were not our. What did um, Ronald Reagan call these guys in the eighties? Our freedom fighters or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, or he, he equated he equated what would become Al Qaeda uh, with the founding fathers of the United States. Yeah, these mm-hmm. are like our founding which, fathers. Ironically, is is. Mm-hmm. But there's yeah, another component um, here that uh, that I think mm-hmm. bears looking at, and uh, Harrison, you alluded to it a moment ago when you're um, bringing up the Patriot Act. Uh, so 9/11 seemed to be this. Um, acceleration not only in consolidating power around the world, but also uh, through these new laws, uh, i.e. the Patriot Act, um, which we've discussed before on the show in our interview with Graham McQueen. Uh, It's as though uh, these laws um, enable the government to crush the lifeblood out out of the U.S. So there's this this kind of domestic effort also mm-hmm. to crush dissent, uh, to get everybody thinking along the same lines, uh, to extract great amount of great amounts of wealth um, uh, from the public to the national security surveillance state, and um, and all because of this uh, this this one event. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we've seen this type of thing happen before. There have been a lot of parallels, uh, pointed out between the Patriot Act and, uh, the enabling act of Nazi Germany, where in, I think it was 1932 or 1933, uh, you had the Reichstag fire, which was, um, this kind of proto 9-11. Uh, it was attributed to a, a communist, uh, lone, arsonist, uh, but later it came out that um, it was actually members of the brown shirts or the Nazi party that set fire to the Reichstag. Anyway, Hitler got to put in this enabling act uh, soon after, uh, accrued all this greater power for the Nazi party, basically. And, um, and that's what we've seen with the Patriot Act, I think. So there's not only this kind of uh, reaching out to all of these countries and 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 working to uh, undermine their sovereign uh, rule, uh, but there's also this kind of um, this this extraction of of uh, of wealth and and uh, and freedom uh, that was experienced and allowed to happen domestically in the United States. And that's that's kind of been what's permitted in the minds of many people, uh, the reason to allow the U.S. to go into Libya, to go into Iraq, to, to now go into Syria, and God knows what else. Mm-hmm. Elan used the F word. What? Freedom. 
Freedom is free. <laughs> that word, yeah. Cause folks like you and me. Well, <clears throat> point taken, Alan, but we need to consider also that um, it's not like things were rosy before 9-11 for Americans or anyone else. This was it was maybe a jump up, a worsening of everything, but uh, this is this came after what ten ten years of Reagan Bush and then eight years of Clinton, who was like Tony Blair in the UK, every but every bit is right wing and um, I don't know. I think there's a clear. You think there's a clear break? A, 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 a clear, clear break. downward spiral after night. A clean break, yeah, probably for. Uh, the, after nine eleven, I mean, if you just look at what's happened, it's yeah. I mean, sure, things have never been rosy on this planet, but uh, people in the U.S. I think had it relatively good. People in Europe had it relatively good uh, in the seventies, eighties, nineties. Things were relatively okay. There's all sorts of wars, covert wars, low intensity conflicts being waged by Western powers around the world. Uh, but that was all kept kept away from Western populations. They were small, covert, and they were doing a lot of damage and killing a lot of people. Um, but, well, let's say after Vietnam, between Vietnam and 9-11, things were all right. People could believe that the world wasn't such a bad place. There wasn't too much conflict going on. Uh, the conflicts that were going on were kind of normal to a certain extent. The ones they knew about were normal conflicts that they could understand. Conflicts that had meaning. Even if you didn't agree with them, or you were on one side or the other, you could still understand them. And there was uh, there were no Muslim terrorists out to chop the heads off people just because they didn't like them and able to do it. Now, the kind of conflicts I'm talking about here would be, you know, freedom, uh, resistance movements in certain countries, or liber- you know, um, independence movements in certain countries. You everybody can understand. For example, uh, I keep uh, referring back to this because it's close to home. But uh, for example, everybody could. If, if challenged or if push could understand, for example, the IRA's uh, campaign for, I mean, it's understandable they want independence. There's anybody with a impartial, at least, which is probably most people in the US, would understand that as, yeah, I can understand why that's happening, but it's wrong, but they shouldn't, whatever. There was no real threat to anybody. These were all conflicts that happened in, in, in small localized areas around the world. So everybody could think that the world wasn't such a bad place, and then 9 11 happens. And, uh, and there had been a build-up for a few years previous that there was the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 that kind of set the scene. And for the next um, uh, years, eight years or so until 9-11, you had various, uh, the, the ramping up of the profile or the increasing of the profile of uh, Muslim terrorism, Al-Qaeda, etc., uh, carrying out the odd attack here and there in different countries around the world. And then it came full, came on, on stage in a big way on 9-11. And, you know, Muslim terrorism, jihadi terrorism, whatever you want to call it, it's just, it's a gift that keeps on giving, you know. It's a perfect ruse, effectively, you know. Um, because, like Alan was saying, you can use it to justify, you can have the odd, you can, you can hype up. It, it really replaced, in, in the context of the Cold War, it replaced the, the, the reds under the bed terror scare, you know. A reds under the bed uh, comedy scare. Um, but, and it was, it's worse than that because you're talking about actual terrorists who will just blow up America because they hate our freedoms and democracies or will attack people in the US. Um, so it brought it, it, it basically, it's kind of like it involved American people directly in what uh, 
in, in the kind of nastier side of life, basically. It brought it all home to everybody, you know. And I'd say, I'd say um, maybe the people who behind this had maybe decided, well, you know, these people are feeling a bit too secure, you know. They have it a bit too, they have it a little too good, you know. Uh, they need to be afraid. Uh, of course, they have an agenda behind that, which is to, like as Alan was saying, won't you put the country on a kind of war footing, or in this case, a terrorism threat footing? Well, you just are able to funnel vast amounts of money from taxpayers up into the defence industry, and and uh, ultimately, very often into politicians' pockets and their corporate friends. And of course, at the same time as it as doing that, it as we've mentioned, it justifies uh, imperial expansion all across the world because. I mean, the, the, the Soviet Union, sure, that justified a lot, you know, but it was all about defense and there were kind of clearly defined borders. There were skirmishes here and there and fights over different uh, parts of the world, but it was all covert. There was no hot war because of the threat of, 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 of nuclear Armageddon for everybody, right? So there was a, a limit on that. But with the threat of jihadi terrorism, mm-hmm. it's like, well, these people aren't that, these, these aren't the. Uh, civilized people at all. They're like boogeymen, effectively. They're evil, just fundamentally depraved human beings who want to uh, kill anybody, killing Western or any infidel anywhere. And the fact is that they are anywhere. They could be anywhere in any country. They could pop up here, there, anywhere. And we need to get them. Why? Because they attacked us in 9-11. It's perfect. I mean, it just covers all the bases for what an empire wants to do, which is control people back at home, loot the public, uh, public purse back at home, to justify uh, imperial expansion, like we mentioned, uh, mentioned uh, earlier on. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that there's also the element of this mass traumatization. I mean, for so many days after uh, the events of 9-11, uh, we saw the, uh, the, the plane hitting the world, the planes hitting the World Trade Center over and over and over again. Uh, I was living in New York at the time, and you know there was rumors that the Pakistani owner of the local donut shop fled back to Pakistan and who was he really? And, uh, we had that one, two punch with the anthrax scares and a, a, a friend of my family started taking Cipro. So, uh, there was this, you know, it, it did, it, it hit, it hit Americans on a very, uh, on a very different level than they were, uh, used to in just hearing about terrorism happening abroad. It was now home. Uh, everybody knew somebody mm-hmm. who knew somebody who, you know, was, was in New York or in DC or you felt like you did. And, um, so yeah, operationally, Neil, I agree. It, it, it wasn't so far different from what we had seen in decades prior, but there was this, um, escalation, this kind of visceral, uh, yeah. um, attack that was made on the, on the, minds and on the and psychologically involves psychologically but uh compare some figures here mm-hmm. three thousand americans died in the attacks on the day at least four thousand people who went to help at the world trade center have died since then um mm-hmm. conservative estimates by a washington a dc-based uh, physicians research group estimate that since 1990 at least Four million Muslims have died due to directly or indirectly from U.S. interventions. At least 1.5 million Muslims have died from U.S. interventions in the aftermath of 9/11. So I'm just putting it out there that the scale of what it was in actuality 
Sure. I, I know it's one thing to talk about that, and another thing to talk about the, tra- the traumatizing effects from psychological terror, but they're still two different things. It's one thing to be carpet bombed, and it's another thing to be given the simulation of being carpet bombed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but oh, I, one, one begets the other. Yeah. Well, the whole point of 9-11 was to bring the American people into it. Beforehand, they had been passive, not well, relatively passive and relatively uninvolved. And the problem is that that can only go for go on for so long. If you have an, if you have designs on the world that are, and you, you you're kind of you're thinking we're not going to be able to do what we want to do and justify it in any way. Uh, you know, with with kind of they're they're a threat to us. We don't have the commie threat anymore. We need a new threat basically to justify what we want to do, and we need to bring the American people. Uh, in on this because if we don't if we don't give them a reason to back us then there's a chance that at home we're going to have resistance there's going to be lobbying and etc and protests etc against the wars that we want to involve ourselves in we need a cover for this basically you know so the the the, the psychological impact the psych- psychological impact of 9-11 on the american people on mass like alan was saying repeated videos over and over again was uh, for the specific purpose of justifying carpet bombing, continued carpet bombing, and more carpet, carpet bombing in other places around the world, you know, and that's exactly what it did. And it also, as Oxygen was saying on the in the chat room, that it obviously at this point the end result is that it has divided people. You know, if you can have a war on Muslim terrorism without really having a war on Muslims or Muslims feeling that way, and it, it uh, engendering kind of hatred or whatever against Muslims in 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 European or, or Western countries. Um, and that, as we as we know very well, is, uh, is 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 the situation today, where it's getting worse and worse. Where European uh, countries, in particular, and even in the U.S., there's uh, a lot of racism and uh, division among uh, countries. That uh, for Fr- France, for example, uh, between the Muslim population and the non-Muslim population, you know. Uh, whether that was by, by design or just a, a result, who knows? But That's it's definitely question, a result. What's the result? I'd love to know what were they, what were the outcomes they hoped for, well, versus the outcomes we got. You know. Well, if they were smart enough, if they actually cared, they might have thought about it and, and followed through with all the permutations. But uh, if your initial urge is just uh, greed, I want what that person has. And you go ahead and implement some plan to get what that other person has or that other family has or that other community has. Well, if you think about it, and again, this is if you actually care, and usually people who would uh, have that intention wouldn't care what would happen. But anybody who did care could foresee that if you go and steal the resource to that other community, uh, you're not just going to get stuff. They're all going to starve to death. Um. You know, they may fight against you. They may start attacking you. They may, you know, I mean, you can follow it through and imagine all the possible implications of what they may single... start migrating en masse. Right. So, I mean, all of that was foreseeable. But of course, people who just want something and go and get it probably don't uh, think about it. And of course, we sitting afterwards and see the looking at the fallout from it, we think, well, they planned all that. Well, maybe they didn't. Mm-hmm. So, it's certainly they planned their initial grab. You know, because, like we said, 9 is full of holes um, all over the place. And nobody seems to care. Obviously, obviously the, the, one of the major ones is 
building seven that people keep referring to, obviously a controlled demolition de- demolition in building seven, but the World Trade Center towers, the two the twin towers, not really a controlled demolition. Those things, uh, to quote, to quote uh, uh, Judy Wood, <laughs> or to use her phrase, were dustified. They were turned to dust uh, largely. Uh, it wasn't just they were turned to dust. Uh, everything inside was was obliterated. Uh, there wasn't. I mean, there's plenty of interviews with first responders and stuff who said that they couldn't find a chair, a table, a computer screen. And in, in large buildings that were largely office space, they couldn't see one computer screen. They couldn't see one chair. They couldn't see a table. They saw a little piece. They couldn't see a phone. Probably were, there were probably X number, X thousands of phones in that building. And the people who were looking through the rubble couldn't find one identifiable piece of a phone. Well, maybe they could identify as a piece of a phone, but it didn't look like a phone. So everything in that building, and not only that, but there were reports that certain things, a lot of things were actually melted together. Like somehow melted together or uh, like wood and concrete was found kind of in one piece, stuck together, like as if it had been merged in some way. Fused somehow. So, so, so something, um, something very strange happened to those buildings. All you have to do is look at it and go, that's obviously the, the, building, the building's just being powdered. You know, it's being, it's being pulverized in situ by something. Certainly not by those planes, obviously. So who, what it was, uh, you're free to speculate. There's, you know, directed energy weapons or whatever. Uh, but something very weird happened to them. You're, you can't avoid that that fact. It's it's right there when you watch a video of them falling down that something very strange happened to them. Um, well, Neil, I, I so, wanted yeah. to get back to something you said a moment ago about the millions of uh, Middle Easterners uh, Arabs who had been killed as a result of 9-11 or in the wake of 9-11 and, and just prior, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, relatively speaking, uh, the carnage that happened on 9-11 uh, in the U.S. is minuscule in comparison to all of the uh, killing that has been allowed to occur uh, since then or as a, as a result of that day. And you know, it's just a testament to uh, just how exceptional, uh, you know, the West considers itself, just how arrogant, just how, um, just how self-centered it is that, that such a, uh-huh. uh, a Holocaust, effectively, a real Holocaust, uh, has been allowed to occur with, with so little real outcry. Uh, and and um, you know, and so they, much um, and so much venom towards those victims. Yes, I mean these are these are uh, to most Westerners, they don't even really exist. Uh, the the implications, uh, the 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 sweep of the suffering that that's occurred is not, it hasn't registered. Uh, in the minds and in the feelings of, of people in the West who are to one degree or another ignorant and, and complicit in allowing Western governments to, to do what they've been doing. So it's a very important point. And, um, but yeah, like Joe was saying, my, my, my point in bringing up the, the mass trauma that, that occurred here was just in, um, 
just in presenting what it facilitated, what it allowed, uh, or what it, um, yes, what it allowed the U.S. to do since then. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it is the arrogance of of America is just kind of staggering, you know. Um, Americans are encouraged to believe all the time that their lives are worth more, that their lives are, are very special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the lives, and obviously the lives of others are portrayed to them as not being very special at all, to not being, not being important because they're encouraged to just ignore the, the deaths of others, even, you know, including at the hands of, of their own government. I mean, I was watching a live feed of the 9-11 Remembrance event today in New York. <clears throat> We're down at, <clears throat> down at the, uh, the Remembrance Garden, the Remembrance watery hole in the ground or whatever it's called, um, where they, they have all the names on, on, you know, engraved on, stone tablets effectively um, on the walls they, there were people uh, they had people who had family members die in the 9-11 attacks reading out names, lists of names so 15 years later they're having this ceremony every year where they read out every thousand plus people that died on 9-11 and yet, the U.S. government, the U.S. military, was directly responsible for the deaths deaths of well over one million people uh, that they used nine, the nine eleven attacks to justify. I mean, you can bet your ass that um, there's no remembrance ceremony for any of those people in Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya or Syria, which is ongoing. Uh, but somehow it's it's right for the names of those three thousand people to be to be lauded or to be remembered or to be their hallowed names basically, you know what I mean? I mean it's and you can't you can't avoid seeing that as pure propaganda mm-hmm. and frankly disgusting propaganda. And I wouldn't say that to the people who lost family members. But the people who organize that in the US government and the, whatever policymakers who decide that that's what's going to happen and make a big fanfare of it and live stream the video to the whole world if they want to see it and, and, and get it in all of the newspapers and stuff. That's, that's for me, that's frankly just disgusting, you know, when, uh, when you know that there are millions of other people who died, uh, at the hands of the US government, uh, who exploited 9-11 attacks in the same way that they're exploiting them today by having having a ceremony uh, to kill those people, you know? So it's, on the one hand, they're using effective, what is effectively emotional manipulation to, you know, to remember the deaths on 9-11 and stuff, but it's actually being used to continue to kill other people. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a caller on the line, so maybe we'll go ahead and take it. Hi, caller, who have we got? Hey, how you doing? This is Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Oh, hey, Stephen. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, happy birthday to Bashar Assad mm-hmm. in Syria. Oh, wow, it's his birthday. It gives me a reason to celebrate today. Yeah, it's his birthday today. Wow, happy birthday. 
I knew we were celebrating something. <laughs> yeah, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating that. Good. No, and, uh, you know, I'm also mourning the uh, mourning the deaths of uh, over a million, probably two million people from all the violence that seems to be rooted in uh, the event of 9-11. And um, so, you know, just bad news. But um, I wanted to, wanted to ask you, um, did you hear about today when Hillary was at the uh, memorial service for 9-11 in, I guess, New York City? She almost had a fainting spell. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. So she, and she, she had to go overheated. to Chelsea's apartment. Yeah, she got overheated and she had to go to Chelsea's apartment to like chill out, get over the Disney dizziness. So, uh, wow. That's not, that's not good. No, just, she looks like she, she looks like she needs like help going up steps and wow. It doesn't look good, but uh, what do you think is going to happen there? Do you think, uh, I think this is going to influence her, uh, her presidential potential. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, even, even to the point of being elected, you mean? I think that I think it's going to be a closer race than um, than the media is kind of like like saying right now. It's going to be a closer race, and um, Trump might win. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not vo- I'm not voting as I said before. I'm not I'm I'm bowing mm-hmm. out, but um, I'm in a kind of a precarious position. I, you know, I'm so uh, I've got I've developed so many Syrian friends and. So for me, I would rather see Trump win just because of uh, my connections with Russia, Ukraine, the Donbass, Syria. I'd rather I, I see Trump as less dangerous, mm. but um, the guy is he, the guy is so odious that uh, he's so odious that um, you know I'm I'm very conflicted. I'm not conflicted at all that I'd rather see him win. Yeah, but um, you know I um, you know like he was making a speech um. And he's talking about, um, you know, about like Iraq and he was making a speech and he goes, and guess who gets the oil now? Iran. We should, mm-hmm. this oil should be ours. So in other words, like Iraq's oil should be ours, but because um, Obama and them fumbled the ball and pulled out. So now Iran's going to get it, you know, mm-hmm. and, that, and when he, he appears, first, excuse me. Well, the, the implied message is we need to get it first. Uh, exactly. It's just this uh, this deep-coated uh, imperialist mindset that I was shocked that I'm shocked that Trump makes that statement. But it's actually smart. Um, you're you're not going to win by coming out and saying, "Hey, we shouldn't have done it. Iraq's oil is theirs." You're going to be seen as a wimp by the by the herd, right? So, uh, so just just to go back to something I wanted to ask you, uh, Stephen. Um, who who is uh, Hillary's running mate? Who's your VP? <laughs> oh, gee. Tim Kaine. Oh my god! Hold on, man. You're giving me these trick questions. No, oh, it's not fair. It's, uh, pain. Kane, Kane, yeah, yeah. What do we know about him? Because obviously the situation I think is that if uh, if Hillary's unfit, she could win, and then when she's unfit, he gets to be president. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Who is Tim Kane, really? Maybe we should look into him because he might be the new the new POTUS. Oh, Stephen's gone, is he? 
Hello? Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a centrist corporate Democrat. Hmm. He's like a, he's like a, he's like one of these people that doesn't really have a personality, you know, that, um, you know, says the right things in front of different constituencies. But the end of the day, he's going to be pushing the uh, Goldman Sachs um, financial capital agenda and um, pro T, uh, pro T, TPP as well. TTIP, yeah. So, uh, T- yeah, yeah. Like he, so he's kind of like a Truman character, is he? Pan pusher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just, oh my God, just, 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 it's just pretty depressing. Yeah. But, um, is that, yeah, that's anyway, the- um, I'm going to get off the phone here. I just want to say happy birthday to uh, Bashar Assad and, the, okay. and God bless the Syrian people. All right. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, All Stephen. Right, thanks, y'all. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye. Well, just on that point, I wanted to say that, you know, even if Hillary was out of commission with, with, uh, with Bill in the White House, you can bet your bottom dollar that he's going to, that he's going to do everything he can do to call the shots. He's and, not got much time left in him either. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's doing him? a little better than, yeah. than kill. I he's going to be, the, he's going to be the first man. <laughs> yeah. He's going to be the first man and the, Probably Is that the, what they call him? The, the power behind the White House. Didn't we talk the about first, that on the show? I think the, there's, a, there's a phrase for it. First I, gentleman? First gentleman or something like that? Yeah. That's ironic. <laughs> yeah. And he, he'll just have, have to stand beside her and smile and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. That'll be and gurn at people. Well, um, uh, go ahead. No, I um, I don't know. It's uh, it's a nine eleven is a long time ago, um, and most people don't remember it. Mm-hmm. Into people's in, in people's minds, I think it's faded. It's so much has happened since then, and it is really that the, all the details that have happened. People really need to look back uh, and see what has changed. And everything that is linked directly to the 9/11 attacks, both domestically in the U.S. and um, and in in Europe, for example, and, and around the world, because uh, as Laura, who's been on the show a few times, uh, is is fond of saying, 9/11 really was the day when things changed dramatically, um, and like we've been saying. Okay, there's stuff going on. Uh, that's that was similar, but there does seem to be something seminal about about those nine eleven attacks and what the, the course that uh, the world has followed since then. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, obviously, you can't say, well, would things be the same if nine eleven hadn't happened? But I mean, would there be? I mean, you look at the, the the police brutality and all that kind of stuff. Some things are maybe hard to link directly to nine eleven, but then maybe they're not. In another way, it just depends how how many degrees of separation you 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 look at. Um, so it's hard to actually say. What I'm saying is, it's hard to say that nine eleven was the was the thing that changed everything. But certainly, it it, it things have gotten a lot worse since that day. Things were bad beforehand. Would they have continued on their downward spiral? Probably not, but it seems that the people who carried out 9-11 did it for a very specific reason, and it was to uh, 
launch more wars. And of course, war, as a general rule for the planet, is a bad thing. It has all sorts of negative knock-on effects, both at home and obviously in the in the war, and in the, in the country subjected to the to the war, lots of suffering um, and death. And as we've seen recently, um, the, the immigration, you know, demographics, groups of people moving out of war zones into other places and stuff. It's all got horribly, horribly worse. As we wrote in the blurb of the show, it's just got a lot worse since then. And nine eleven definitely sits uh, at the center of that as at least one of the primary uh, primary causes of that worsening of the entire situation. Um, God bless America. We've got another caller. Hi, caller, are you on the line? Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, this is Kent uh, from hey, Kent. West Virginia. Um, yeah, um, there's a, we were talking earlier about how the, the United States went in and just sort of changed, dic- changed out dictatorships. And uh, I, I don't know if you watched it, but currently on RT is running a, a very interesting series of little documentaries called When Elephants Fight. And it's about the, uh, you know, the, the goings-on in Africa, particularly in Congo. And uh, they had a little scene there in one of these episodes, and they're talking about uh, Mobutu. Mobutu was born, and he was installed after um, he killed, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, anyway, he was installed, and... He was looting the place. They described a situation where Bill Richardson basically went in and uh, had a little chat with him and said, uh, uh, we want you to go. And uh, his response was, well, well, why? I've been doing everything uh, that you wanted me to. I've been serving you well. And he said, well, we want you to go. And... Uh, I got the impression chronologically, but you remember when the old man Bush said he wanted to put a kinder, gentler face on America? And uh, what I'm thinking is going on was that, you know, after, you know, during the Cold War and, you know, the United States was supporting all these brutal dictators and uh, there was all this talk, well, you, you know, they took, you know, hypocrisy about democracy. And so I. I kind of got the idea that after that, they thought that they didn't need to. They wanted to actually um, change out some of these people and put in sort of a, you know, a softer version of themselves. You know, and so I, I, I recommend you checking that out. It's going to run for a while. You may be there too. When elephants fight, it's on our feet. So, and um, yeah, it's something I think you probably do. Yeah, I haven't watched those, Kent, but I, I think I'll check them out. Yeah. That's when elephants strike. When elephants fight. And, and apparently it's based right. on a, a, you know, a Congolese uh, sort of uh, um, uh, truism. Or, uh, you, know, you know, when elephants fight, it's only the grass that suffers or something. It's one of those you know, phrases, that, you know, it's a national phrase or something. And it's pretty interesting. And, uh, also, uh, 9-11, there's a, 
local talk show here, and he was on a couple of years ago, and he was saying, uh, you know, we don't see the 9-11 towers collapsing anymore. And he wants to, you know, he wants to get on, turn on the television every, every 9-11. And, and they, apparently, I don't watch television anymore, but apparently they don't show it actually anymore. I, now he's a call-in show. <laughs> I called him up and said, well, you know, there's this, there's this suspicious, suspicion across the country that those things awful look an awful lot like controlled demolitions. And that's why I'm not showing them anymore. So I, I don't know whether anybody watches the, the network news. But I don't know whether they're showing that at all anymore or not. I think they're just having celebrations. You know, little town I'm in, there was a big celebration, you know. And uh, so it's just like a, probably that, that footage is probably, won't, you know, it'll sort of disappear. Kent, what was the celebration of? Well, it's just that they, up, up here in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, they have a, they're having a musical groups, musical groups perform. I guess it's a, sort of just a patriotic, you know, we're having difficulty hearing you, Kent. Oh, Kent, you're, you're breaking up. I think we're going to have to let you go for today. Uh, can't hear you anymore. Thanks for calling in, and uh, we'll be sure to check out that uh, that documentary. And um, but yeah, just on the, on what you were saying, I th- I think I got your point that uh, that they don't seem to be showing the towers anymore. It's an interesting observation. I haven't noticed because I don't really watch uh, watch the news, uh, mainstream news. But um, I mean, it would make sense if they don't want people to look at it too much. I mean, it it did its job in the first few years, and now that people are asking questions, I think it's uh, more convenient to just kind of forget about it. But um, but yeah, thanks for calling in, and we'll uh, we'll yeah. talk to you again later, Kent. All right. That's in keeping with um, assuming that's the case that there's some kind of editorial decision at the top. It's in keeping with something Kerry said last week, John Kerry. Um, now he was referring to something specific, but he did mention in passing that he thought thought it would be a better idea. It would be for the best if the media just stopped reporting about terrorism. Mm-hmm. they'll continue to have terror attacks and they might let you know that something awful happened. But the, ideally, they would like this to remain operational kind of at a subliminal level. Obviously, it won't be subliminal for the people directly hit, but um, it got me thinking, it, it fits very well with the twisted, um, with, with the mind job of the whole, of the war on terrorism as a whole, you know? Yes, 9-11 was completely spectacular, in your face, can't avoid it. But actually, like I said, it's a relatively small event in the whole totality of events that have happened since then. Um, But it's grossly inflated to something far bigger than the sum of its parts, if you know what I mean. Um, And it's, it's... how do I say this? Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting in the I've years lost, following uh, <laughs> in the years following um, 9-11, Neil, we had those um, color-coded alert charts, uh, you know, code yellow, code orange, code red, which was like, okay, now you should be in this state of fear. Okay, now things are really dangerous. You've got to be this much afraid. And um, it really became something of a, a joke, at least among people in the alternative uh, media. Um, who saw it for what it was, and, and people stopped paying attention, I think. Um, you know, if, if things were going to happen and they were going to happen, I guess the mindset was. And, uh, and, and maybe the, you know, maybe to some degree, although we, you know, we still have, we still have terror attacks in the U.S. Um, so, you know, and I don't think anybody can, can, see the news on one of these things and not in some way connected to 9-11, So there's that also, even if Kerry is saying, let's not look too deeply into these terror stories. It's still in your face. They're still happening. And, uh, and that association is going to be made, whether it's uh, conscious or not, I think. Well, I want to kind of change gears for a sec and go back to something Joe started out the show with about kind of the ambivalence about 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, I go through some kind of, uh, I guess, waves, you know, back and forth. Everyone's, for, for like a year or two or three, I, I, won't, I won't think about 9-11 or do any kind of reading into it. But then, you know, somehow I'll read something and just kind of get the bug again and look into it. And... So this, that's happened a couple times over the past couple of years, uh, because I really do think, you know, every time I come back to it, I, I find that it is it is just really fascinating. I mean, I, I enjoy looking into it just for the, the kind of mystery aspect to it and of connecting the dots and kind of figuring out what, 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 what happened, what didn't happen and all that. I don't think, of course, uh, in terms of, oh, well, I've got to do this because we need all the information to get a new investigation and, uh, and bring the criminals to justice yeah. because I think that's totally a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. I th- but I do think that it is worthwhile to come back to it every once in a while and look at it and just look at the details because the devil's always in the details in anything like this. And anytime you learn something, anytime you, you kind of work your brain and try to figure something out and look at details, I mean, it helps. Um, Translates translates over into other areas and other investigations. Um, so there's just that. But on that note, um, over the past five years, there have been a few really interesting books that have come out, including some things that uh, I kind of knew about, but uh, these books kind of look at them in, in really great detail. And I just wanted to um, just give a little brief outline of them, just so if people are interested, they can check them out. Um, the first one was a book published in 2011, by, um, what's this guy's name, um, Kevin Fenton. And he's one of the guys that works on Paul Thompson's 9-11 timeline on History Commons. And this gets back to something we just mentioned briefly earlier about these uh, the Saudis involved in 9-11. And so this whole book is, ba- is pretty much about the CIA's Alex Station and the two guys that um, came to 9-11 like... Um, entered the country in early 2000, uh, Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi. And it's just, it's a really good book because it really gets into all the details, all the declassified documents. These guys at History Commons and Kevin Fenton and uh, some friends of his, 
they've really done a great job of filing FOIA requests and getting all kinds of documents and then looking at them and finding all these little gems. And in addition to this Fenton guy, there are these two guys that made a, made a documentary, Press for Truth, about the 9-11 widows and their kind of mm. um, <clears throat> effort uh, after 9-11 and with the commission to, to you know, get answers. And um, it's about them. But they did a, an audio uh, podcast documentary after about this same, subjects, same subject and interviewed all kinds of people. They talked to people that were working in Alex Station. They got interviews with Richard Clark, who was the head of counterterrorism in the in the Bush administration, and found some really interesting things about these about what, all this stuff that was going on. Now, I you know I, we can't get into all the details today, but I just wanted to to give a couple examples, um, and one to kind of make it relevant is um, recently uh, a couple of us here watched the movie Zero Dark Thirty. Now, has ever have. Has anyone else watched that movie Ooh. about the the Bin Laden operation? I stayed away from it. You stayed away from it. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, you're not not really missing much. It's not a great movie, but it, it is really interesting from just a um, like a CIA propaganda point of view because the filmmakers, um, Catherine what Catherine Bigelow is that her name? Yeah, and the the writers mm-hmm. they had um, allegedly you know unparalleled unprecedented access to like top secret documents they had ac- access to stuff that um the public isn't doesn't have access to and to the personalities involved and so they were basically fed a line of information whether true or false it's impossible to know because it's unverifiable because these documents are still secret and so they were basically presenting the picture that um the CAA wanted you wanted the the public to know about it or at least a, a narrative that they wanted to put out there. And it's it's an interesting film to watch just with that in mind. But the way this connects with um, with these Saudi guys and uh, Fenton's research and uh, the guys that made this uh, podcast documentary is that the main character in this in this film, the female CIA officer who basically, you know, it's her goal to find bin Laden and she eventually does um, in the film, she's actually based on a few... Um, real CIA officers, apparently, and one of them, it was, uh, it came out um, sometime after the film was released, is the famous Queen of Torture. Now, I can't remember her name right now. I think it's Karen Somethingowski. Um, she was a CIA officer that was uh, kind of became infamous as this uh, as this Queen of Torture, and her name wasn't revealed for a while, and she was the one that. Um, you know, went uh, went in to participate in these interrogation torture sessions, even though she didn't have to, and even though you know she wasn't part of this operation, but apparently she just wanted to, and um, so she had this kind of this reputation as the queen of torture, and it turns out that she was the same person, this redheaded woman, as she's called in some of these um, declassified documents from the 9/11 Commission and the you know Joint Inquiry, that was working at Alex Station in the late 90s and, and 2000, 2001. Because what had happened was that there was this um, this FBI guy who was in Alex Station as part of the liaison between the, the FBI and the CIA. And when they when Alex Station had found out about this so-called you know, Al-Qaeda summit in Malaysia, and um, this was big news in Alex Station, big news in the whole you know, counterterrorism industry, because for the first time that they ever knew of, all of these... 
um, you know, all these guys were getting together. And so it was kind of like the, you know, the screens were flashing red, that this was an important thing to look out for. And so all the, everyone involved was interested in this and watching it. But what happened was once, you know, as they were conducting their surveillance on what's going on, they find that two of these guys, Alhazmi and Almirar, have multi, multiple entry, uh, multiple, what are they called? Multiple entry visa Visas, yeah, uh, on their passports for the U.S. Mm-hmm. So this FBI guy writes a memo, and he's like, okay, well, here's the draft memo that I'm going to send to the FBI because they have to know about this. They have to know that these guys are entering the country. And this one woman um, who's called Michelle in the documents, her real name is Michael Ann Casey, she blocked it. She she said, okay, well, she basically just said no. And then right after she refused to, to pass on the, the message to the FBI, she wrote an internal memo to the CIA saying she had passed on this information, even though she hadn't. And she was covered by her bosses, Richard Blee, who was the, cha- the uh, station chief at Alex Station, and his boss in counterterrorism, Kofor Black. They all kind of signed off on this. And so Kevin Fenton, he traces the, the chronology through all these documents to, to show what happened and what didn't happen because the, the 9-11 Commission, uh, you know, there's this famous footnote 44 where they talk about this, and this event was kind of written off in the aftermath as just, oh, you know, there was so much going on at the time. We just, it was just a, a mishap, you know, miscommunication. We just, you know, we thought we sent it, we didn't. And, but when you look at the actual story, it becomes very clear that um, like on 37 occasions, I think it was, this information was actively suppressed, and not just by people in the CIA in Alex Station. Um, it went, you know, it crossed over into different uh, organizations as well. Even there was a, a guy working on FBI counterterrorism who who did the same thing, and then Kofor Black even went was transferred over as the liaison to the FBI. Um, or no, no, not Kofor Black, um, Tom Wilshire. Um, but anyways, those names are meaningless if you don't read the book and know who they are. But um, mm-hmm. but this um, this same woman, the Queen of Torture, she was she was basically Michelle's boss, like on the one level above her, and she was involved in stopping this information from from going forward. So from 2000, this woman who allegedly later on found Bin Laden and had him killed was involved in preventing the information about these two Saudis from from getting to the FBI because it's the FBI's job to track them once they're in the US. Now, so that's mm-hmm. just that's just the picture. Now, of course that that opens up so many different questions because um, most of the people talking about this including Fenton and, you know, well pretty much everyone that talks about it and the way they look at it as is is that well this was the opportunity to opportunity to stop 9/11 as if these guys mm-hmm. were, you know, the masterminds, or at least played an important role. Now, of course, you know, like you said, Joe, earlier, then, you know, chances are these guys basically had nothing to do with it. That's, so, what I've been trying to think about for the last, you know, few months since reading this book off and on is, you know, so what's really going on here? And just the other night, I was reading um, a chapter in Peter Dale Scott's latest book, the, The American Deep State. And, you know, I just found out about Peter Dale Scott. I'd heard about him, but I just finally started reading him recently. And, well, I think he's great. I think people should check him out. But in this book, he's giving his interpretation of this because he's not, you know, he's he, he's a really good thinker. He's sharp. Um, he may be really old, but he's still got it. 
And he looks at this and mm-hmm. says, well, just hold on a second. Yeah, we can, we can accept this. But he breaks 9-11 down into three different, at least three different kind of possibly separated operations. There were these, uh, the so-called hijacker, hijackers. What were they doing? What were they planning? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Then there was, of course, the, the plane mm-hmm. attacks. And then there was the demolition of the, of the buildings. Now, it's possible that all three were connected by only the kind of the flimsiest things. They could have been three kind of totally separate, but, um, you know, connected at some level. It could be that there were three separate operations mm-hmm. that whoever was working on, on any of these three wasn't aware of the others. Um, kind of just compartmentalization mm-hmm. of information. So you look at these Saudi guys, and even keeping in mind, you know, what you said, Joe, about some of these guys turning up alive later on, well, what were these guys actually doing? The ones that we have, you know, relatively good information about who they were and what they were doing, like Al-Hazmi and Al-Midhar, and even Muhammad Atta, who was, you know, showing up all over the place in Florida. And and then the other guys in Florida who um, were, you know, moving around and living in places, and, you know, just around the corner, there are these Mossad agents that are following them around at the same time. You know, what's going on with that? Mm-hmm. And so Dale Scott, he... Um, he posits that this was, you know, probably the best explanation for this was that these were, it was kind of, it was a liaison operation. So these guys were Saudi intelligence, and that's come up ver- um, from various people speculating that, that because they were tied to mm-hmm. known Saudi agents, people in the Saudi embassy, they were getting funneled money from, mm-hmm. you know, high-level Saudis and Saudi agents um, through various middlemen. And so what were they doing in the States? Well, I think that it's impossible to know for sure. But what seems likely is that this was basically a CIA um, Saudi liaison operation where the the Saudis were given some level of autonomy to to operate in the U.S. and it was the CIA mm. job it was the CIA agents' jobs who were involved in this to basically um, disconnect the dots, as Fenton puts it, in order for, so that the, the FBI wouldn't get involved and basically blow the operation. And so mm-hmm. if you look at it in terms of that, I mean, really, I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the people that we think of as, you know, guilty for for being involved in 9-11 and all these various different um, um, blunders or so-called or whatever are actually kind of innocent in a sense. They were probably breaking the law and doing all sorts of other um, nefarious things kind of unrelated, but they got caught up in it in a way that basically forced them to have to cover up for their part in it. So like this CIA guys, mm-hmm. um, it's possible that some of the, you know, that they did had no idea that, um, you know, what the actual operation was or what these people were being involved in, but they had to cover up this information because they knew that these guys were Saudi agents and they had to, uh, you know, they couldn't let the FBI in because these guys needed to uh, maintain their cover as kind of like these double agents within uh, within the U.S., and then once 9-11, 9/11 happens and these guys get tied to it, it's like it's their asses on the line. So it's like, okay, well, now we have to totally, you know, get rid of as much of the paper record as possible, deny these things, come up with an explanation for that. And um, so there's that aspect, and it just makes me wonder, well, what what were these Saudi guys actually doing in the States? They were obviously up to some kind of either espionage or... It might, I mean, they were in Florida. It might have had something to do with drug trafficking. And, I mean, some of them were tied with this, um, you know, with people connected with this Al-Qaeda network. What were they, you know, were they tied to um, just this kind of, you know, global jihadi network in some way, um, you know, doing U.S., Saudi, and Pakistani, um, you know, foreign policy? 
what was going on. Um, that's just kind of a mystery for me, but something that I find, you know, just really interesting to, to look into and keep in mind, um, you know, whenever thinking about this Saudi connection, just as one example. Any thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few. Go ahead, Joe. Um, well, just thinking about uh, talking about uh, Muhammad Adam and people like that, they seem to fit the profile. Those guys are running around, running around Florida, um, eating pork and uh, going to strip clubs and doing tequila shots and whatever else. Um, obviously, that's been highlighted to point out these guys obviously weren't uh, devout Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously they weren't devout Muslims. Um, so that nixes that whole aspect of the of, of the nine eleven attacks. You know they hate us for our freedoms, radical Muslims. They weren't. So what were they? And as you were just saying, they're they kind of fit the profile of uh, of Saudi uh, agents, Saudi intelligence agents, or uh, the what's that term they use for? People who are sheep dipped. No, people who are used by uh, intelligence to do their bidding. Patsies? No. Harrison, help me out here. Oh, um, you're on the FBI terror, FBI terror plots. What's the term inf- they use? Informants. Um, informants. 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 Mm-hmm. The, the informants. Yes, they were basically they, they fit the profile of either of of Saudi. They don't really fit the profile of high level or proper Saudi intel. Mm-hmm. That's because they were too high profile. They were too much uh, a spectacle of themselves. So they would instead fit the profile for me and already Intel informants who, as as you know, intelligence intelligences use these people uh, in pretty much the same way all around the world. Um, where you basically have some guy who's a criminal or has been involved in some kind of, um, in the case of Saudi Arabia, he could have been some kind of a part of a some kind of actual jihadi group or something or, you know, or, or maybe had a criminal or, and they're basically arrested by the police or by, uh, sorry, intelligence or in the U S by the FBI. And they're given a choice. You can go to jail. You can work for us. And then they're, they decide to work for, for the intelligence and they go and they do some kind of particular job. But very often those people are used to, I mean, in the case of FBI terror plots in the U S of which there have been many since nine 11, <clears throat> where the FBI itself targets some individual they want to use as a patsy for uh, to generate a, the appearance of, of there being a terror plot. They'll use one of these informants that works for the FBI who has the credentials, you know, is, has the street cred type thing, goes down and can play the role of, you know, an Al-Qaeda operative, whatever, to get the confidence of uh, some poor, innocent kind of guy who's just a bit stupid and, uh, induct him into Al Qaeda and suggest him that suggest that he wants to maybe carry out some kind of jihad or war in America, and then the FBI, you know, it's all stage managed. The FBI goes down and grabs him, arrests him, and says FBI terror plot or, or, or terror plot foiled. Not FBI terror plot. But that's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's an FBI foiled by the FBI to just to, you know, it's Christopher the Mill, Christopher the War and Terror Mill, basically. You know, we're under threat. This isn't a reality. You know. Problem is, people are presented with this reality of their being, and this this goes for people in uh, in law enforcement and in in the FBI and the police in the military in the US. They're presented with this this concept, this idea, this reality. They're told of there being a war on terror. 
So suddenly they're, they retool for that and they're looking at everything. And suddenly they're starting to look at anybody who could be involved in this uh, threat to America, this Muslim terror threat to America. But they never consider the fact that it doesn't really exist. They, they're believers. They believe that it exists. And of course, 9-11 was foundational in imposing that belief on the American mind across the board from law enforcement down to the average person in the street. And they all believe they all bought into it because they saw the towers fell and they were told what happened. It was a traumatizing event that seeded that idea of a war on terror, a, war, or a Muslim terror threat to America. These people believe it, so they started looking for it. Uh, so the human mind is, 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 is kind of a, uh, will, will, will search out things that, uh, that back up or reinforce a belief, you know? Uh, so it's not strange that uh, the FBI would be going around uh, identifying people. Yeah, that guy, he wrote on Facebook, uh, Allah Akbar, you know. Maybe he's up to something. Like, you know, before 9-11, wouldn't have been a problem. Now it's a problem. It might mean something. Let's look for evidence. Uh, well, there isn't much evidence, but maybe he's thinking about it. But how do we know what he's thinking? We'll ask him. But we can't just go up and ask him. We'll get somebody who... Because if we just want to ask him, he'll deny it. We'll get someone who he trusts or he thinks he should trust or he can't trust. Get him to ask him. Someone who shares the same ideas as him. Right, but we can use one of our informants to do that. He's like a guy of Middle Eastern extraction, speaks Arabic. He can go and talk to him on our orders. Talk to that guy who posted Allah Akbar on Facebook. Guy goes down, he told what to ask the guy. Do you... You know, first of all, he gets his confidence. Give him some money, buy some drinks, talk to him, start introduce the idea of jihad. Guy's like, yeah, kind of looked at it, thought it was all right, maybe a bit of jihad, not okay now and again. I see. So the grooming process goes on, and that's how they create a terror plot. And so they create their own reality to um, this reality, the, 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 a reality around this belief that has been installed in everybody's mind because of 9-11. <clears throat> so anyway, kind of di digressing there a little bit, but... Um, the Saudis, um, the Saudis. I think the Saudis were involved. I mean, there was. I reckon there was a, there was a plan. Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, someone within the Saudi intelligence. I think, like you were saying, Harrison was. You know, there was links between Saudi Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Because Saudi Arabia isn't really a Middle Eastern country. It's a Middle Eastern oil station owned by America. Mm -hmm. uh, so gas station owned by America. So Saudi's interests are, are pretty much the same as America's interests. Um, so they would have been definitely working together to on different things, plans, you know, keeping tabs on certain situations in Iraq, in Syria, in Iran, in Yemen, keeping tabs on all of that along with the Americans to ensure American dominance in the Middle East r remains intact with the Saudis as the uh, as a kind of like as a, as a major component of that the petrodollar and all that kind of stuff. So they would have been doing stuff, obviously, just as a run-in-the-middle kind of operation, you know, well, uh, you know, keeping tabs on people in the Middle East, keeping tabs on people in the U.S., some, maybe some Saudis in the U.S., you know. Whether, whether or not there was a, a, a conscious involvement in that, but these, it, the, the, this Muhammad Ada guy and, and the other Saudis who were, so-called Saudis who were, who were in 9-11, who were blamed, who, who were blamed for 9-11, um, they, as I was just saying, are, are more than likely patsies, expendable patsies who were used 
by, but they were definitely within, they were definitely involved in uh, some kind of a intel operation in conjunction with the Saudis and the Americans in the U.S. going around Florida doing something, and they're expendable. So the people who were planning to fly the planes into uh, the World Trade Center towers could put those people, those Saudi intelligence assets, wherever they wanted, they could put them in this airport in Logan or in uh, in, in New York uh, whenever they needed to, yeah. take some pictures and frame them in that way. Um, so almost by definition, the people who the people who um, who were involved in moving those people around, if they moved them into Logan Airport, for example, in Boston, those same people knew about a plan to fly planes into the building and frame those people for it. Yeah. And then the people, and if there was a separate group who dustified the towers, then they, by definition, had to know that the planes were going to fly into the building because they dustified the towers at, at the appointed time after the planes flew into the building. Mm-hmm. So... All of which means that Bin Laden did. <laughs> QED. And because America. And because America. Well, you mentioned the you know the, the pictures of the guys at the airport. Just really briefly, that gets me to the second book, which was published in 2013 by this uh, kind of legal expert, Elias Davidson. It's called Hijacking America's Mind on 9-11, Counterfeiting Evidence. And again, this guy went through thousands of documents. A lot of the FBI, I um, can't remember what they're called. It's a certain form. Basically, they get witness statements and interview um, either witnesses or people that are involved in some way. So he, he read all these documents and put them together, and he focuses on the the, the planes. So, you know, the passengers, the phone calls, the, um, the, you know, data about where the planes were and all that stuff. So I just I'd recommend that if you're interested in getting a bit more detail on that. But the main conclusion he comes to is that when for every aspect of the planes, there is no official documentation. Um, and by that, I mean there's, there's no official verified, like, um, identification of just the planes, for instance. So there's no chain of custody. There's no analysis of serial number parts to make sure that the, you know, to, to actually just confirm that these planes were actually the actual planes. He's not saying that they weren't. He's just saying there's no evidence and that there isn't any um, actual evidence. Same thing with the the very few um, photographic records, like the the famous um, CCTV from the airport of Mohammed Atta and the other guy in, you know, whichever airport it was. That Those were released kind of just through a back channel there's no identifying information. Again, no chain of custody. Same with the, all of the bodies. There's no chain of custody for any of the, the DNA, any of the actual physical remains of any of the victims that were on the planes. And so he just goes through every kind of aspect, trying to actu- look at what, what evidence actually exists, and comes away basically saying that there's none. There's, there's no... The, the job that they did was just so bad um, and so obviously... Uh, so obviously bad um, that, you know, something is really up. And not only that, they, there's evidence of counterfeited information um, so that they would actually manufacture fake evidence. And this is all, this is all verifi- th- that in itself is verifiable. It's more verifiable than any of the actual physical evidence that you get on 9-11. So um, I'd recommend that if you actually want to look at that evidence and see, um, you know, what was actually said in all these FBI interviews, what these people were saying about, you know, these are people at the FAA, 
um, you know, people who allegedly got the received the um, all the cell phone calls or seat back phone calls from the people on the planes. Um, and he looks at it all kind of like in excruciating detail. So if, if that kind of stuff appeals for you, I'd recommend checking it out. Well, one of the most obvious examples of, of this kind of, um, you know, lack of uh, objective evidence is the, is the idea that, uh, you know, ground zero, the largest crime scene in American history pretty mm-hmm. much. And what does Rudy Giuliani do? He has all of the uh, steel beams in Ground Zero taken out immediately, brought to New Jersey, and then sold to some corporation in China. So China has the evidence. (laughs) I wonder if they looked at it first before they just melted it down. Good question. Of course, it's probably all melted down. And and, uh, and I mean, you know, except for that one, you know, passport that was found. (laughs) of one By Bernie Carrick. By Bernie, ideally, right? Uh, on Ground Zero, pointing to one of the uh, alleged terrorists, it, it's it's a joke. It's a very bad joke. Um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think to change a little bit and to end with, I think we'll uh, lighten it up a little bit with our port. If you haven't seen it on SAT yet, it's. Um, <laughs> It's a report about uh, an 18,000-mile-per-hour asteroid almost caused a mass extinction, and no one saw it coming. This will, uh, anybody who's feeling a bit depressed uh, about the state of the world, this will uh, brighten up your day. Um, this is for the second time in a month, a giant asteroid uh, just missed colliding with the Earth. Uh, the, kind of, the kind of space science programs around the world, including NASA, etc., were completely oblivious to this happening. Uh, and, uh, so this was a, um, it was a size of, I think they said it was about the size of a bus um, and it was traveling 18,000 miles per hour and it passed by only 23,900 miles from the earth. Um, and just for comparison, like communication satellites are used every day around the world by pretty much everybody. Uh, orbit at a distance of about 22,300 miles. So it was about 1,000 miles uh, further away from the average uh, communication satellite uh, that orbits the planet. But the really funny thing about this was was that not only was it, was it the second time in a month that one just came out of nowhere, but um, just this week, so the same week that this asteroid just grazed past the Earth, uh, that would have had, uh, if it had hit, it would have been a significant, significantly bad thing for uh, pretty much everybody. Um, on this, in the same week that that happened, NASA launched a mission uh, to try and disable a giant flying meteor that is uh, supposedly approaching the Earth uh, and could cause mass extinction in about 150 years. So here they are, you know, okay, yeah, let's look at the threats. Yeah, 150 years away, that one, we should get on that one. And one just whizzes by their heads, basically. And they're like, what the hell was that, you know? Um, so just, I mean, they just, I'm not to say that they should be all seeing uh, or anything like that, but it's just the hubris involved in, um, in them trying to, uh, you know, having these programs to watch killer asteroids, as they call them, and to try and come up with plans to stop them and at some point in the future hitting the Earth when there's these things flying past that come out of nowhere. They don't, they don't have the technology to actually 
view or see these things on their approach and they just see them after the fact. Oh, look, that one just passed us by. Uh, but then if you look at, if you read Saddle a lot and you read the fire in the, in the sky category, you can just look at a list like for the past, for the past week, for example, in the, in just the past week, apart from this one <clears throat> that I'm mentioning, uh, there are other smaller but still significantly large, not just shooting stars, but big balls of fire flying across the sky. There was one over North Carolina, strangely enough, uh, this week. Also, Cyprus, one that uh, whizzed past Cyprus and exploded and uh, lighting up the sky. Uh, there was one sighted across Virginia in the US, a guy in, uh, <laughs> there was another one actually in New Zealand, way down the other side of the planet from us. Um, South Island caused a big bang and, and lit up the sky as well. Another one across the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then a really interesting one, according to a guy in Massachusetts, uh, a meteorite hit a single pear on a tree in his garden and knocked it off. A little micrometeorite. So, uh, this well, has been happening the last few years, actually. Um, a major uptick in meteor sightings around the same year. from September through December or January. Yeah, October surprise. Maybe. Uh, but it's just funny because on that article that we put up on, on Saturday with this one that was passed not very far away uh, just this week, uh, there's a comment uh, by someone saying, I think this article is fear-mongering. And he obviously missed because when you look at that article, in the, the, the fire in the sky category is seen on, on the right-hand side of the page and there's just this list, long list of meteorites that have been seen in the past week and he thinks that this one is fear-mongering, you know. Uh, yet there's this evidence staring right in the face that uh, our planet's being like buzzed seriously and has been for the past 10 years really increasingly by space rocks flying past, blowing up in the atmosphere, you know, um, causing, possibly causing planes to fall out of the sky because of the shockwave blast, some of them hitting the earth, uh, but on many occasions putting on a big light show in the sky. And we're not talking about a little shooting star here from anybody who doesn't know we're talking about a big old ball of fire shooting across the sky and in some cases, uh, you know, exploding, detonating, causing uh, kind of causing houses and windows and houses to shake, and and then there's also just the unseen ones that seem to be causing booms. You know, people don't see them in the daytime; they're too high in the atmosphere. But people are hearing booms. What they're ascribing to sonic booms very often. But then when they ask the local military station, uh, local air force station, uh, uh, they say no, no, none of our jets in the area at the time. So just the the evidence for for this is overwhelming at this point. But no one seems to actually really be paying attention. But then you can understand that, I suppose, because if NASA's um, track record or current record of of completely missing uh, meteorites flying past, metaphorically flying past their heads, basically, then nobody wants you to posit that uh, there may be an impact coming at some point in the near future if the incident of incidents of these uh, space rocks is anything to go by. No one wants to think about that because there's nobody in this planet can do anything about it. So when you present that information to people and say, hey, do you see all the space rocks hitting, hitting the atmosphere and blowing up over the past 10 years? It's just risen exponentially. What if it means that one of them is likely to hit the planet soon? People just go, maybe, yeah, okay. Can we stop it? No. All right, well, why are you telling me then? <laughs> you know? I mean, we're a bit weird in that way where we look at this, these kind of things and we just don't seem to go there with the, 
uh, go with the implications of it, you know. Um, and in fact, uh, just last year, in fact, far from not going with the implications or not thinking about the implications, there was that poll last year uh, or earlier this year where uh, 13% of voters in the US who were asked said that they uh, would prefer a giant meteorite hitting the earth than to see either Trump or Hillary in the White House. So some people aren't very optimistic <laughs> or they're a bit fatalistic about the whole thing. So Meteor for president. Yeah. Anyway, what we call it a night, guys? Yeah, well, you know, we've got a caller. Um, let's take it and just uh, make a note to keep it short. Okay. All right. Oh, just wait. Connecting. So, caller, you're on the line. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes, so uh, keep it short. <laughs> Are you there? Oh, hi, Harrison. It's uh, Ryan from Australia speaking. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Uh, hey, Joe. Um, hey, guys. Uh, just um, wanted to call in just to say it was a great show. Really enjoyed it. Um, lots of really pertinent information that I wasn't aware of and, um, yeah, plenty to dig into um, for people who are interested in um, the whole 9-11 um, like detail uh, about all of the possible things that um, could have been going on in the background and, and that were sort of weaving together into the overall picture of it. Um, but um, the, the um, when Joe mentioned the, uh, the the meteorite in the pear, um, I just read about that on Twitter today, uh, this morning, and uh, yeah, that was quite a freaky story. Um, like the guy had all these problems happening where he, like there was bad weather at first and then there was only one one pair produced on the tree and then then that pair happened to get hit by a meteorite it was oh, wow. sort of like what are they <laughs> um somebody's had to get him so, so, the first fruit something something um yeah extremely symbolic sort of about it almost um uh, the, like, you know, maybe sort of, hey, people, you should be paying attention to this kind of thing. Um, I uh, coincidentally um, uh, just got a hold of um, Laura Knight-Yagic's, um, Laura's uh, new book, uh, well, new, uh, it's been out for a couple of years now, um, Comets and the Horns of Moses. Um, that just turned mm-hmm. up from Amazon the other day, so um, I've just started reading that, and... Um, yeah, the first chapter's been really interesting, um, but um, I haven't sort of got too far into it yet. But it's um, it's my current book of uh, book of choice that I'm reading at the moment, and um, yeah, certainly certainly a lot on the subject that I think people need to know about with regards to comets and um, meteorites and all that sort of thing. Because uh, yeah, statistically, um, there's been a few articles on SOT. Um, there was one boy, uh, a, a Dr. M.A. Rose or something, I think, that was sort of around the beginning of this year that um, where he looked at a lot of the statistical uh, data to do with uh, meteorite impacts and things, and um, it, it's pretty clear that there's something going on. Just, something's just up. With, uh, yeah. Yep. Literally. Yep. And... Um, it's it's hard to sort of know how much um, nine eleven might tie into all that sort of stuff um, because like you like you were saying a lot of it's probably done just for sort of empire building and like hegemony and all that sort of stuff uh, but 
there are these sort of unusual aspects to 9-11 that, um, like the dustifying of the buildings and um, it just seems to be such a, a huge operation compared to a lot of the other sort of little sort of, um, you know, uh, little operations that the um, the CIA have done sort of over the over the last, uh, well, the intelligence agencies have done over the last sort of 10 years or so, uh, 20 years, 30 years. Um, and uh, well, pro- not- notably in the last 20, that uh, the... Uh, there's, there's, they seem to be all sort of like fairly small operations compared to 9-11. 9-11 just seems to be this whole other level of um, complexity and um, the amount of people that were involved that competed, like probably it was almost like the pathocracy had sort of decided or, you know, there's something big coming up. And so all of these sort of various like players or in the, various, you know, psychos all sort of started to, the ones who knew about it, like the, the information must have filtered down more than normal from the from the top and, and all of these different sort of groups within the pathocracy had started to work out how they could benefit from it in some way and they'd done their own little sort of, they had their own little interests and things like that. So then uh, that's probably the, the where possible, it was. Uh, yeah, the the possible link in between the increase in fireballs and space rocks flying around our atmosphere on 9-11 is, uh, would have to refer back to um, British astronomer, astron- astronomer Victor Klub, uh, who is the author of a couple of books, Cosmic Serpent and Cosmic Winter. Uh, he wrote in a report that was commissioned by the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, uh, to... to to look into the threat from space rocks effectively. He, he wrote in that, that we do not need the celestial threat, i.e. the threat of space rocks to disguise Cold War intentions. Rather, we need the Cold War to disguise celestial intentions. So basically what he's saying there is that, um, at that writing at the time, which was during the Cold War, that um, the Cold War was being used <coughs> to, uh, or should be used in a certain sense, to cover up the... Uh, the threat for from or to distract the people from the threat from uh, uh, kind of cyclical catastrophes from from spaceborne spaceborne rocks and of course if you just uh, replace Cold War as we talked about earlier in the show if you play, if you see the transition from the Cold War threat to the West to the uh, into the Islamic terrorism threat to the West well then the same would apply uh, that that the Islamic terrorism threat is um, uh-huh. is being used. And the whole terrorism business and getting everybody worked up and afraid about and looking at the, you know, being scared of, of, of potential attacks, etc. anywhere in the world by ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whoever is, is all designed uh, at some level perhaps to uh, to distract people from what we've just been saying, which is that over the past 10 years, the incidence of space rocks flying past us or flying into us has increased exponentially. And that's obviously something... So that, that's that, something that Clue predicted. He predicted in this report in the late 1980s that there would be a massive increase after the year 2000. As well, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Now, not necessarily suggesting that the planners knew that, but or at least the lower levels knew that when they went out and carried out 9-11, but 
but that something celestial, say, on the, or on a level with who knows what, yeah. some oversight of some kind might have been able to pair the two events. But. Maybe. Mm, so there you it, go. It's, it seems it seems likely to me that the um, the uh, war on terror was sort of in preparation at least a good ten years, sort of before nine eleven happened. Um, mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. from very sort of kind of a super superficial sort of evidence from my point of view. Like the, there's a particular movie with Samuel L. Jackson and Gina Davis called The Long Kiss Goodnight, where um, the uh, the the whole Muslim sort of terror threat, um, like that's the first time I think I saw it in like a major Hollywood type kind of movie, and uh, it, I, I, I saw it again uh, sort of a few like about a year or two years ago, and it occurred to me on the rewatch that it was the first time in sort of a Hollywood like a large Hollywood movie that um, that whole concept of sort of like Muslim terrorism had been sort of widely promoted. And this was actually about sort of like the, the, the movie was released, I think it was 94 or 93, 95 possibly like it was the early nineties. Um, so to me that was the, that sort of rang a bell that, okay, if they're preparing the propaganda sort of this early in advance, and this has been good of sort of in, in the works for probably at least, um, sort of, you know, at least the beginning of the 90s and possibly even sort of like in the mid-80s or late 80s at the very, at the minimal earliest kind of thing. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> fairly sort of superficial, circumstantial sort of evidence, but one of the one of those sort of things that just sort of struck me and the, um, there's, there's probably a lot of actual hard evidence <laughs> more relevant out there, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Thanks for coming, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, the uh, yeah meteors and fireballs thing. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, take care. Have a good day. Yeah, you too, Joe. Yep. Good to hear from you. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, great show. Um, Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Cheers. Thanks Thanks very much, guys. Yep. Yep. Cheers. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, All right, Harrison. thanks everyone. We'll be back next week. Take care. Bye bye. Have a good one. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>